It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. of The Nuance Life. We're so glad that you're back with us. And today, in our main segment, we're going to talk about the internet. We have a lot of things to say about the internet. But before that... (laughs) It's a series of tubes, what I hear. (laughs) Is that a dated reference now? Like, does that show how old we are? That's Jon Stewart, Daily Show Days. Yeah. I mean, who was the senator that... Is he dead? Didn't he die? I don't know. It was the senator from Alaska. It was the Bridge to Nowhere guy. Who said it's a series of tubes? That's getting in the Wayback Machine now. It wasn't, though. It was like less than 10 years. But what? I guess that's a Wayback Machine for some. It does. It feels like a lifetime ago in some ways. But before we talk about the Internet, I wanted to talk about this beautiful advice column from The Cut. It's called, I'm Dying, But I Want to Be in Love. And the letter to Ask Polly talks about a woman who is in her late 20s. She has cancer. She probably has two years or so to live. And she desperately wants to find the love of her life to spend these two years with. Polly's response, which I think is beautiful and perfect and worth reading in its entirety, deals with the reality that finding someone in that space is going to be a challenge. Mm. And deciding when and if to reveal this fact about yourself is going to be a challenge. There's a very real risk of attracting someone who is there for your tragedy, not for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that is super interesting so and so true. And then, I call them tragedy trolls. That's yeah, talk about them. that for a second, Sarah, because I feel like you have a really sharp perspective on tragedy trolls. Um, so when I, between the birth of my second and third son, I lost a pregnancy at 20 weeks, which is pretty far into the pregnancy. So I was showing everyone knew I was pregnant. Um, then we lost the baby and I coined, I don't know if I coined it, but I made up the phrase tragedy trolls because it just felt like there were people who they wanted to know what happened for a couple reasons. Either they wanted to sort of 
talk about their own experiences that happened a lot, like people who are like, oh, yes, that happened to me. Let me explain to you about my miscarriage or whatever. Or there was a lot of just wanting to know the details for wanting to know the details' sake. Like, there was not a lot of, like, there was just a decided lack of empathy. It was just sort of, it was like a slowing down for a car crash, except I, my, my personal pregnancy loss was the car crash. And, you know, I have family members who are doing this. The second somebody dies, well, did you hear who dies? Well, did you hear what happens? Like, there's just like a a desire to witness, explain, um, put in a box, frame up these ex- other people's experiences. I think a lot of it is, and I won't lie and say I've never had this instinct, like you want to know what happens so you can convince yourself it would not happen to you. I think that's just a normal human reaction. And But there is also like a, a subset of, yeah, just a, you can just, they're like moths to a flame. So at the time, I wrote a blog post about this called Stop Trolling My Tragedy. And I said, these people want to witness your sadness without carrying the burden of your grief. It's it's like they just want more information than really is necessary. They want more details than they really need. They're sympathetic. They're not really empathetic. Um, and I wrote at the time, I said, I understand that empathy is not easy. I understand that standing with someone in their grief is an incredibly vulnerable place to be. It is painful. It is intense. It reminds us of painful things in our own past and the real threat of pain in our future. And I'm not saying we all need to reach that level of empathy with every tragedy we come across. If you, all you can manage is a genuine, I'm so sorry, that's fine. However, I'm begging you to think before you speak to someone experiencing a loss. If you feel obligated to say something, don't. If you feel like you're approaching the encounter to make yourself feel better instead of the other person, don't. Tragedy is hard enough. Don't make it harder by trolling. So I can imagine what a serious risk that would be if you were seriously if you were chronically ill and terminally ill. The other thing that I wanted to pull out of this advice column that I thought was so maybe unexplored in a lot of ways is the point that loneliness is at the center of what this woman is feeling. But it's also like such a universal and pervasive experience, whether you are with someone or not. Like we all have this sense of loneliness that is at the heart of a lot of our suffering. I thought this paragraph was so beautiful. She writes, anguish and longing live at the heart of every life. We are all totally alone in some ways, but we can believe in love and love it like crazy, even in our solitude. I might die alone. We all might. The earth might stop spinning in the next second, cultivating the belief that every sigh, every breeze, every melancholy, uncertain moment alone matters. This is my work and yours and everyone else's. These things are tiny and stupid and inconsequential, yet they matter more than words can capture. I just loved how she really, she goes in depth into like, if you want this, great. Like, if you're doing it for this reason, wonderful. Like, she just makes a lot of space for this woman's natural inclination. But then also, really beautifully, without judgment, creates space for something different as well. It was it was a master class in advice column, that's for sure. It really was. It really was. And I think it made me reflect on, like, if I were in an end-of-life scenario, what would that look like for me? And what forms of love would I need to be surrounded with? And I think it's mm-hmm. many you know, mm-hmm. many different kinds of forms of love because people aren't good at situations like that. And so you would need, I don't know, different skills from different people in your life, you know. And that's true anytime. Absolutely. You know what I mean? That's true all the time. I have, 
you know, girlfriends that are good in certain situations. My husband's good in separate situations. My mom is who I want in other situations. Like, that's all. That's true of anything. And so more intensely when you're facing sort of some sort of end of life situation. And, you know, another thing that's true about is when you have true joy in your life. I think there's yeah. there. Are, it's almost as hard to find people who are good at celebrating with you as it is to find people who are good at knowing how to deal with really difficult things. No, that is totally 300 percent true. You sort of know a really good friend when that person can go either way without overdoing it and without making it about themselves. They're not easy to find. No. Although I luckily have had I have like four amazing girlfriends who are good at that. I got, I got, I won the girlfriend lottery. It's just the truth. But I don't have any sisters, so I just feel like it all kind of comes out in the wash. So what are you thinking about right now? Well, this column got me thinking about advice columns generally. In my next life, I want to come back as an advice columnist. I love advice columns. Um, and I think, this, you know, Molly, Polly does an amazing job. But I feel like the the advice column um, – guru is Cheryl Strayed in the Dear Sugar column. Have you read the Dear Sugar collection? No, I haven't. Oh, it's so good. Cheryl Strayed is amazing, just generally. Have you read Wild? Yes. Oh, I just love her so much. And this, I liked Wild a whole, whole lot, but I think the columns are way better. She is just so brilliant. It's it doing what a lot of what Polly does in that. Just the make space for it. Can I steer you this direction with love and no judgment? And this one got me thinking of one of my all-time favorite Dear Sugar columns, which is um, from a man who's lost his son. It's called The Obliterated Place. And he talks about how much pain he's in. Um, He said, I'm a sad, angry man whose son has died. I want him back. That's all I ask for, and it's not a question. And he kind of does this numbered list of all these things. in his life and the grief that he faces from his son's death. And he ends with, how do I go on? How do I become a human again? I'm totally going to cry reading this. It's so good. And so she um, goes through this, the the answers one by one. And she said, <clears throat> it's your life, the one you must make in the obliterated place that's now your world, where everything that used to be is simultaneously erased and omnipresent, where you are forevermore a living, dead dad. And she goes on and she says, the word obliterate comes from the Latin obliterare, ob meaning against, literare meaning means letter or script. A literal translation is being against the letters. It was impossible for you to write me a letter, so you made a list instead. It is impossible for you to go on as you were before, so you must go on as you never have. It's wrong that this is required of you. It's wrong that your son died. It will always be wrong. The obliterated place is equal parts destruction and creation. The obliterated place is pitch black and bright light. It is water and parched earth. It is mud and it is manna. The real work of deep grief is making a home there. Oh, I just love that so much. And I thought it spoke to sort of what she was getting at with her too. Like it can be, it's both. It's loneliness. It's love. It's facing life when you know it will come to an end, like that that impossible paradox of being a human being. Oh, I just, it's so beautiful. I love it so much. I love that idea of equal parts, creation and destruction. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about that since we had our conversation on marriage and you talked about how with each new child, it's a new marriage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, with each, with, with a new job, it's a new marriage, whatever. And I think that's really true. And I think... We give short shrift to the creative exercise that is adult living. 
And I'm not sure that we equip ourselves for that creative exercise, you know, because I think we approach life as though everything until you're in your 20s is leading up to some cumulative career and set of life choices that that are then supposed to plateau. We I think we talk about it like then I'm I mean, we say this, right? We use the language. Then I'm going to get settled. What do we say to kids? What are you going to be when you grow up? Like, that's like it's happen. a destination. <laughs> like yeah. you just get there and you're like, we're done. We've grown up. Everybody dust off those hands. You're here. It's done. Super done. Well, and it, it requires a whole different set of skills to live in this ever shifting way than the skills that we seem to be amassing all the way along that journey. Yeah. Who Who is prepared for a terminal illness in their late 20s? No one. Who mm-hmm. is prepared for the experience of burying a child? No mm-hmm. one. No one. And I'm not sure why, despite millennia of people having experiences that they're unprepared for, we continue to approach life in such a linear fashion. Well, I was listening to this really fascinating conversation on Ezra Klein's podcast um, with the author of a book called Buddhism is the Answer. I can't remember the guy's name right now, but he was saying that there's this new formula, sort of new way of thinking about the brain and it's like a module. And so you have the like get food to survive module, the, um, you know, anxiety about new situations module. And you just like sort of have all these competing interests. But we think about the brain as in a linear way, too. But I think those competing interests, I think our big monkey brains lead us to think about life in a more linear way, despite because that, you know, that's just the majority of our brain is a monkey brain. And we just have a little bitty people brain at the front. And so I just think that for the most part, the monkey brain is still in control and the monkey brain to function and not freak out constantly has to think it as this like sort of linear march towards, towards survival, when in reality, it's much more complex. But if we sort of existed in the complexity, I think we might be anxiety-ridden all the time. I don't know, though, because we know how underdeveloped our brains are, especially that prefrontal cortex. So maybe the trick is continually expanding the exercise of that prefrontal cortex, right? Continually trying to access more and more of the people brain, so that we Well, can... I mean, he says the answer is Buddhism, but I haven't listened to the rest of the podcast. So, we'll have to listen so you to the don't rest. know if that's the answer. Yet. I mean, I think to y'all. Look, I think a lot of people would say that what I just said is basically mindfulness or consciousness. Right. 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 And trying to constantly increase that. Now, we're about to have a conversation about the Internet. And I think those two things pair really nicely. Right. Because mindfulness in some ways, we're having more conversations about it than we ever have. In other ways, we're living the opposite of it constantly. Well, and it's like, and Ezra makes this point on his podcast, I think it's so true, which is we, we've sort of decided to treat mindfulness in this, like, life hacker kind of way. Like, put it on the list, check it off. Like, instead of, you know, meditation, particularly as part of the Buddhist philosophy, there are, like, teachings that go along with it. It's not just follow your breath to bliss. You know, like, there, it's, there's a little more to it, everybody. <laughs> Well, and it's and it's not I think we're talking about mindfulness. Your that life hacker is so correct because we talk about it like, oh, well if you meditate for 5 minutes a day, then your productivity will skyrocket. Oh my gosh. Okay, like that, that's Don't put those two things together. Definitely not the point. <laughs> I mean, 
Definitely not the point. That's what Buddhism, Buddhism, I don't know a lot about Buddhism, but I know that productivity is not a central tenet. Next up, we are going to talk about the internet and what's happening online, particularly as it relates to kids. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So over Thanksgiving break, my cousin sent me this truly terrifying article (laughs) on Medium called Something is Wrong on the Internet by James Brittle. And he takes a very detailed look and very systematic look at particularly videos for children on YouTube. I am familiar with many of these crazes. The surprise eggs. Are you familiar with the surprise I eggs? I am, yes. Um, so it is basic. If you do not have children or you do not let your children access YouTube, good for you. Which I, and I should say, I do not let my children, quote unquote, watch YouTube very often, if at all. I try to keep them from it, but it shows you how to beat video games, so it's hard to keep them off of it. Anyway, so these surprise eggs videos are like basically like kids opening presents and like disco- discovering what's inside. And, I mean, there are a million of them, and it seems like every single one has 50 kabillion views. Then he talks about the other, like, sort of nursery. There's nursery rhyme phases um, that are really, really popular, like nursery rhyme videos. And then there's these. I did not know about these. The Finger Family. Did you know about the Finger Family? I did not know about the Finger Family. So the Finger Family is another sort of YouTube, particularly baby video craze. Okay, and so what happens... um, because of these videos and the like because they they become sort of viral crazes and somehow you either parents or children just clicking related videos um, once they're sort of a thing they can rack up lots of views which brings on sort of massive amounts of copycats and people playing off these keywords and these crazes which then brings on the trolls. And so you have really disturbing videos that are made to like sort of mirror these children's videos crazes. So you let's say you have a finger family video, except it's like the princesses from Frozen's getting their heads chopped off. And they're getting into not only like YouTube, but YouTube kids, which is supposed to be filtered. So he, he starts with that examination. So what did you think about all that, Beth? I had never thought about the fact that video content that originated with humans Mm -hmm. was then taken by machines and replicated with slight tweaks here and there based on algorithms designed to rack up views. Mm -hmm. And so he talks about how this starts with videos that just feel slightly off. And the way he wrote about that so resonated with me because so much of what my daughter has shown me from YouTube just has this feeling of being, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's also just just not quite right. It is just weird. And I hadn't put together 
that it's just weird because it's not being done by a human. It's not being made like a piece of art. It's being made like a math problem designed to capture views. And I think that is really worthy of some serious reflection on all of our parts. And he uses this to say, basically, look, this is the system of content creation and ad revenue that we've built, these algorithms. And it is true in a million different scenarios from Russian interference in the election, like basically whatever there's content, there is the and content creation and algorithms based on ad revenues. There's the potential for this. And so this is this is what he says. He goes, this, I think, is my point. The system is complicit in the abuse. And right now, right here, YouTube and Google are complicit in that system. The architecture they have built to extract the maximum revenue from online video is being hacked by persons unknown to abuse children, perhaps not even deliberately, but at a massive scale. I believe they have an absolute responsibility to deal with this, just as they have a responsibility to deal with the radicalization of mostly young, mostly men, via extremist videos of any political persuasion. They have so far showed absolutely no inclination to do this, which is in itself despicable. However, a huge part of my troubled response to this issue is that I have no idea how they can respond without shutting down the service itself and most systems which resemble it. We have built a world which operates at scale where human oversight is simply impossible, and no manner of inhuman oversight will counter most of the examples I've used in this essay. The asides I've kept in parentheses though, if expanded upon would allow one with minimal effort to rewrite everything I've said with very little effort to be not about child abuse, but about white nationalism, about violent religious ideologies, about fake news, about climate denialism, about 9-11 conspiracy. This is a deeply dark time in which the structures we have built to sustain ourselves are being used against us, all of us, in systematic and automatic ways. It is hard to keep faith with the network when it produces horrors such as these. There's a part where he talks about specifically capitalism, and he says... The levels of exploitation not of children because they are children, but of children because they are powerless. Automated reward systems like YouTube algorithms necess- necessitate exploitation in the same way that capitalism ex- necessitates exploitation. And if you're someone who bristles at the second half of that equation, then maybe this should be what convinces you of its truth. Exploitation is encoded into the systems we are building, making it harder to see, harder to think and explain, harder to counter and defend against. Not in the future of AI overlords and robots in the factories, but right here, now, on your screen, in your living room, and in your pocket. It's so scary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So I don't know where we go from here, but it's hard for me to imagine that the things we're practicing every single day, where we're systematically taking patience out of our capacity... Right. We talked about net neutrality on Pansy Politics this week. And the whole issue with net neutrality is that we don't want Internet service providers to be able to slow down certain content, because when you slow it down, we don't want it anymore. Hmm. Whoa, that is something that we need to take a big pause and think about. However you feel about net neutrality, we are practicing everyday habits that 
that are designed to make us less patient. And you can't tell me that that doesn't translate off our screens. So here's the thing. I mean, for so long, I thought and argued, like, I'm willing, you know, it makes my life better. And there's not much, I'm like, I'm basically the deal I made with the devil sort of consciously was I will sacrifice my privacy um, and my data for the access and convenience, the internet, social media, fill in the blank provides. With our cell phones, with social media, it's like there's so much of what we're willing to gamble away is because of convenience. And I just wonder, like, I look around at all of us and I think about our monkey brains that are built to thrive in situations of survival. And I think, is all this comfort making us happier? Is all this convenience, is all this uh, the ability to just pull out a tablet and stick it in front of our kid, which I've done, like, is it making us better? Is it making us happier? Like, I just feel like we're, it's one big human experiment in which we're trading short-term consequences for, you know, short-term effect for long-term consequences we don't even understand. And it's really scary. And it's really scary to think that I've basically, there is this me, there's the Sarah Holland sitting here at this desk right now speaking into this microphone. And then really there's another Sarah Holland. There is my presence on the internet composed of the data that Facebook collects on me, of my Google searches, of my pictures and my videos and the likes I like on Facebook. Like there's like another me out there that I've been complicit in creating. I let them have it, sort of. I, and I don't know what that means. And to think that, this, that these algorithms are creating other versions of ourselves, basically, sort of online versions, what that means for my kids Um, what that means for the media they take in, and the fact that on top of the scariness that this data exists, but that there is so much money wrapped up in all of it and that the people's profits depend on the little Internet Sarah continuing to click and continuing to produce data. Yikes, I don't know. When you say I let them have it, I think part of the problem is I don't know who they are. Yeah. And all this money, I don't know whose money that is or exactly how it's being made. Jeff Bezos, didn't you see? (laughs) You know, I think about the fact that we are the products, not the consumers, when it comes to the Internet. We talked about this on Pansy Politics, too, the whole attention economy. And I and I say this just like you. I love the Internet. I love what it's done for our ability to connect to other people. You and I wouldn't have our podcasts. We, we wouldn't have a community that we've built around them without it. So it's not I'm not gloom and doom about these things. I am thinking more and more about what kind of person I want to be in this era. And it's little things like what opportunities am I missing to connect with other people because I'm so addicted to my device. Here's a really silly example. When I have my two-year-old in a shopping cart and we're in line at a store and I feel like that's always the moment when the wheels start to come off, right? Like she's made it through the store. She's done a good job. She's hanging in. We've talked about everything. We've touched everything. But now we're like about to check out and she's done and ready to go. And maybe she wants something and I've said no. Her favorite thing and my favorite way to distract her is to pretend that I'm painting her face. So I just use one of my hands and I pretend it's my set of colors and I use the other hand and I draw a little animals on her cheeks 
you know, and I put like powder all over her face. And I think there's something to just how good it feels to have your face touched, you know, and she thinks it's funny and then we'll wipe it all away and start over again. And she giggles and laughs and it's wonderful. And I worry that I lose moments like that when I say, here, watch PBS Kids on my phone. Mm-hmm. Because it's so much easier to say, here, watch PBS Kids on my phone. And I worry about that in the aggregate. When am I connecting digitally, but I'm not connecting with my physical affection or my full attention or my eye contact or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I look back and I think, so I think I got an iPhone when Griffin was one or two. I mean, so I I really don't remember what it was like parenting without a smartphone, which means my kids don't know me without a smartphone. And that's really hard to think about. That's really hard to think about what would have been different. What would have, what kind of parent would I've been if I wasn't not only distracting them, but distracting myself. Mm-hmm. I have dramatically scaled back my phone usage just because it was starting to really freak me out. I mean, I got an app that tracked my phone usage, and I was spending a solid mm, three to four hours a day on my phone. That's that's a huge proportion of my child's life I'm missing just because I'm looking at a screen. And it, it, But once you try to scale it back, you realize how insidious it is and how, like, you can't answer questions anymore without your phone. I don't have a phone book in my freaking house. You know what I mean? Like, if I have a question from a business or I need to know what time they're closed or, you know, I need to know about the recipe, I need to know about the event we're going to, what time does it start? Like, there's just, you know, I think about... I read once that married couples remember more because they split up the information and they know what to remember. And there's just so much I don't remember because I know my phone will, you know. And I have to just look it up, look it up, look it up, constantly be referencing it. And it's so easy once you're on it. I mean, how many times do we all get on it and then we're like, huh, why did I get pick up my phone? (laughs) Because I pick up my phone. That's what I do. I have thought for a while and have tried the set the separate like the different tune out days taking a I tried to do it one day a week for a while and like I guess I'm this is how I go a lot of my life which is I've sort of moved past not moved past but like still working on my individual choices but just also thinking about the big picture and like the systems in place because I firmly believe that individual choices only take you so far that there are systems in place powerful systems and this article left me really thinking about the powerful systems, particularly the just the algorithm for ad revenue game we are all constantly playing and engaged in. And it really left me shaken because I don't want I don't want to be the product anymore, I don't think. I don't think I want Internet Sarah out there ginning up profits for Amazon, Google, Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. I don't I don't know if I want that anymore. I I don't even know to, how to begin to extricate myself from it, but I do know that I'm at least starting to think about it. And it's not because I think profit is bad. It's that there's this whole system at work that I don't understand. It's that I'm consuming content and I don't know who created it. 
-hmm. It's that sense, you know, the first time I went to Las Vegas, I said to my husband, Chad, something feels so strange to me here. It's like my brain is dissolving or something. And he said, well, it's designed to be like that, right? The casinos are lit in a way to make you never have a sense of what time it is. And the air is filtered. And here are all the things that have been set up to make you want to sit here and spend more money. Okay, I can I can understand that. The internet takes that to a whole new place. And it's not just people running the casino making those decisions on how to dissolve my brain. It's computers making those decisions, right? It's programming that's gotten away from the programmers. Mm -hmm. And I wonder at what point we'll lose the ability to look at one of these YouTube videos and say, something is a little weird about that. And it will just be. Mm, That's really scary. Luckily, the human brain takes super long to evolve. (laughs) And I do think, you know, mindfulness is an important part of trying to counteract some of this on the individual level. But on the systemic level, I think we need to think about the choices that we're making as a society to continue to push in this direction. And I don't want us to be regressive I think technology does wonderful things for us. I do want us to like hit pause for a second and ask ourselves if this is what we want. For better or for worse, and I'm sure there are lots of instinctual reasons, we just adopt the new technology without asking ourselves like, okay, wait, what is this supposed to do? And is it going to actually solve the problem I'm looking to solve? Like, I'll just be honest. I think kids and cell phones has gotten way off course. Like, I think people use them to solve a small problem which parents for thousands of years didn't feel the need to solve, although they, you know, it's for a lot of reasons, it wasn't as big of a problem. But this idea of, like, I need to know where my kid is, I need to be able to reach my kid, understandable, and a completely understandable problem to solve. Is a cell phone with full access to the Internet the best way to solve it? Like, just ask. I mean, maybe the answer is yes. Maybe the answer for your time and your resources, the answer is yes. But I think that we just, and I do this all the time. Like, I say, I have the Amazon Alexa in my house because it makes music. Like, we like we listen to music more than we used to. And now I'm thinking, like, yeah, but is that the best solution? Like, I also could have just, oh, I don't know, gotten a dang radio. You know, like, but I, but again, it's, it's this, the creation of, yeah, but then I couldn't listen to the songs I want to the second I want to listen to them. This creation of a need, like we didn't even know we had that happens so often with technology as well. That's sort of like, once the video's that fast, I will never go back. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and we've talked about this before, but I worry about the introduction of those technologies at a very early age too. My daughter is learning reading and math through Lexia and Dreambox at school. And so there's this sense of stimulus response, stimulus response constantly. It's a game. Everything's a game. I don't know that that's the best way to move forward. She's interested. She's learning. It, it works. It's effective. Yep. But getting back to your earlier point, all of these systems are being designed with that monkey brain of ours in mind. Mm-hmm. And we're just getting better and better at being asleep in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's so true. 
That's so true. I mean, and what does it, I mean, at what point have our, have we designed a system that fuels our monkey brain and has really out-evolved our people brain? I mean, that's the concern, right? At what point does, right now we have a system that plays to the weaknesses of our monkey brain, hopefully our prefrontal cortex reasoning human brain is smarter than that system. But what happens if one day it's not? What happens if one day we've built um, an intelligence, an artificial intelligence, and this, you know, sort of an, an internet that is better at playing, you know, that is so good at playing at our, to our monkey brains that it can also outsmart our highly reasoning people brains. You know, like I just, I, I thought the other day, I know this isn't a political podcast, but I was listening the other day to to um, all the the talk about Russia interfering in our election and how I mean I do think that the 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 fake news the truly fake news not just news you disagree with from a trusted source but truly fake news and the way it played to people's emotional responses in our election and how scary that is and how no now we thought about it and now there's there's new information that that happened with the Brexit vote as well. And it hadn't even occurred to me. Like, I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, of course. Why wouldn't they do it there, too? But, like, these sort of the, – the, the ability to play to these emotional responses with truly global consequences, it's just it's really scary. So scary. Well, you have to ask yourself, where is the soul in all of this? When I interact with someone online, it is usually a very emotional experience. Because there's something about exchanging words, for me, that is very real. Like, when I correspond with our listeners, I feel like I know them for those moments of correspondence. And I think a lot of people, the online version of themselves is more present and real than the version that's like getting up and brushing their teeth and going to work every day. And so... If our systems, if our online systems, if artificial intelligence is shaping us in a way that is digital, but that speaks to some of our most base instincts, is there, does the soul kind of dissolve in Mm. those moments too? Is that what maintains some separateness for us? Is that what will, you know, ultimately keep us grounded I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's a really important question. And when I think about, you know, what is my concept of God and how does the idea of sort of an ever expanding universe in which we are all contracting around technology, like how do you square those things? I think that's hard. Absolutely. Well, in our closing block, um, we share one piece that we've been thinking about a lot as sort of a closing note. And I think what I'm going to share is going to be a good wrap up to all this conversation about monkeys. <laughs> so I read um, one piece, like one person's thoughts from Tim Ferriss's Tools of Titans every morning. Tim Ferriss is a flawed character. I'm not a huge Tim Ferriss fan, but I do like this book. And I was reading, I was reading Naval Ravikant, who is the CEO and co-founder of Angel List. And I was reading his thoughts. And this part really stuck out to me. He says, On wine of all no longer has a quest for immortality. If you study even the smallest bit of science, you will realize that for all practical purposes, we are nothing. We're basically monkeys on a small rock orbiting a small backward star in a huge galaxy, which is 
in an absolutely staggeringly gigantic universe, which itself may be part of a gigantic multiverse. This universe has been around for probably 10 billion years or more and will be around for tens of billions of years afterwards. So your existence, my existence, my existence is just infinitesimal. It is like a firefly blinking once in the night. Nothing that we do lasts. Eventually you will fade. Your works will fade. Your children will fade. Your thoughts will fade. This planet will fade. The sun will fade. It will all be gone. There are entire civilizations that we remember now with just one or two words like Sumerian or Mayan. Do you know any Sumerians or Mayans? Do you hold any of them in high regard or self-esteem? Have they outlived their natural lifespan somehow? No. If you don't believe in an afterlife, then you should realize that this is such a short and precious life. It is really important that you don't spend it being unhappy. There is no excuse for spending most of your life in misery. You've only got 70 years out of the 50 billion or however long the universe is going to be around. I really liked that. It get, it provided some good perspective for me. I think that's beautiful. And we appreciate you all joining us. We'll continue the conversation next week. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. If you enjoyed The Nuanced Life, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us in your favorite podcast player and follow us on Instagram at The Nuanced Life. The Nuanced Life is produced by Pansy Politics. Special thanks to Nicholas and Chad for all their help and support. Thanks to Dante Lima, who composed and performed our theme music. To support Pantsuit Politics and The Nuanced Life, visit patreon.com forward slash Pantsuit Politics.